morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Andrew Leslie. For those of you who don't know me, we're regulars at the uh, morning service here. Uh, and uh, it's um, my privilege to be opening this passage together with you uh, now. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would go before us. Please uh, work through uh, your word in our hearts by the mighty power of your spirit. Uh, we pray, Father, that we would uh, see the Lord Jesus more clearly. And we pray, Father, that as a result of what we hear this morning, that he would take shape in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, some time ago, we invested in some clocks for our children, um, not just because we uh, wanted them to learn how to read the time, which we do, but perhaps more selfishly, we were keen to regulate their movements, especially, ideally, before seven o'clock in the morning. It's proven to be a somewhat futile attempt, at least in the case of one of my children who is somewhat resistant to any form of regulation, and in another case, we're now entering into that phase of life where, uh, you know, it would be rather good to get said child out of bed any time before 9am, but at least with one of my children, it seems to have done the trick. So when the little hand reaches seven and the, um, uh, the big hand reaches 12, every day, like clockwork, cue the pitter-patter of feet down the stairs to the toilet and so on. Not a moment before, gratefully, and not a moment later. Time, or more to the point, an awareness of time can be a great incentive to behaviour, can't it? Uh, there's nothing like a, a clock to inspire a sense of motivation or sometimes perhaps a sense of dread depending on the closeness of some looming deadline. That's the funny thing about time, isn't it? On the one hand, it can be a great incentive to behaviour, um, to action. It, it, it focuses our minds on what we need to do. It provides direction and meaning for our activity, especially if you're a procrastinator like me. On the other hand, it's capable of inducing great fear and panic isn't it, which ironically can be quite a disincentive to action. My students at Moore College will all be able to tell you um, that they know what it's like to have 20 minutes left in an exam and to feel paralysed by the clock as they despair at how little they've written of any real substance. Time, or a sense of time then, the clock, it's a funny thing, it can either lead to great action and purposeful productivity, or a kind of crippling fear-induced paralysis. Now, in our passage this morning, we're picking up this letter of the Apostle Paul at chapter 4, and Peter points his readers, he points us to the clock, to God's clock, to God's timetable for human history. See that there in verse 7, the end of all things is near, he says. Time's nearly up. Human history, as we know it, is coming to an end. Now, what's he doing? Is Peter one of just another one of these sort of crazy, bearded, end-time 
fanatics who's using the clock to scare us, to kind of paralyse us in fear and despair. I mean, when people start barking on about end times, it can, can start to feel quite oppressive, can't it? You can tune out after a while. But of course, what Peter is doing here is very different. He's not trying to scare us. The Christian has no need to fear the end. For the Christian, the coming of the end is no less than the coming of our salvation. So that whereas the passing of human time and human history is like like grass, Peter says, it's like a flower in a field that's glorious one day and gone tomorrow. He says, no, there's a word, there's a word that's taken root in every believer's heart, a living and enduring word, an imperishable seed that one day will burst forth into the dazzling colour and beauty and spectacle and glory that is the indestructible resurrection life. That's what happens, you see, chapter 4, verse 6, when the gospel is preached to the dead, so that although their bodies may well die and face that physical judgment like everyone else, according to God, they are alive in the spirit Christian has no need to fear the end. The end is our hope. It's our glorious future. It is our salvation, as he writes back in chapter 1. So if Peter's not trying to scare us by reminding us of the time, what is he doing? Well, I think what he does in this section is he points to the clock as a great incentive to living an authentic, productive Christian life in a hostile world. You may remember that uh, he's written this letter to Christians scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, and he writes to them as aliens, as sojourners, called to live as strangers in this world, in spite of all the hostility and persecution they have faced, or more likely are about to face. And his great concern in this passage this morning is that if we lose the time, if we lose a sense of God's timetable for history, we will simply drift back into pagan self-indulgence. He wants us to keep our eyes on the clock. The end of all things is near. So the first thing is he essentially says is stop wasting time. See verse 3, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. The picture here is of lost time, of wasted time, of dead time. You've wasted enough time, he says, in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry, living for human desires, verse 2, rather than living for the will of God. If nothing else, sin is a real waste of time, isn't it? I don't know how much you've reflected on that. The sheer wastefulness, the pointlessness of sin. Peter spoke about this back in chapter 1 where he talks about the empty, futile way of life from which we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. See, it's interesting here in verse 3, he doesn't zero in on the more obvious problems in our world injustice, war, genocide, people smuggling, slavery, and so on. Now, he zeroes in on those places where everyday greed and violence are at once both hidden and revealed in the very normal, mundane, banal 
habits of self-indulgence. This word debauchery or licentiousness is what we in the liberal West call freedom, isn't it? By which, of course, we simply mean the reckless, unstoppable reign of our own desires, not only, but certainly not least, our sexual desires. In the West, freedom is a euphemism to treat sex as a product on a shelf in a newsagent, or on a computer screen, or in some shady parlour. An end in itself, something to be consumed simply because you want it or you need it, without any regard for the person, for the relationship, for the covenant, for the children, for the social order. It's a commodification of sex that has essentially ruined love, as one writer has put it, so that once, what was once a good God-given appetite to be enjoyed in the service of love in a marriage is now an absolute necessity to be grasped at, to be worshipped even at the expense of love itself. Lusts, those insatiable cravings that call for nothing short of immediate gratification, whatever the cost, leaving the family courts and the abortion clinics to clean up the mess in their wake. Drunkenness, orgies, carousing, that endless, mindless consumption of alcohol and food and bodies and goods and property consumed and then chucked out, destroyed without any regard for the consequences or the common good. Detestable idolatry, that's the essence of it, isn't it? Worship of the creature rather than the creator. See, when human desire ceases to find its end in the will and the design of its maker, it ceases to have any end at all, doesn't it? It simply is. It simply desires. It listens to nothing other than itself. You take away the true end for which human appetites were made, the infinite, eternal God, and all you're left with is human appetite, which begins to assume a kind of infinite, unstoppable, infinite and unstoppable proportions of its own, always seeking but never finding, always consuming but never being satisfied, always working but never resting. And so what pretends at freedom is really just this hopeless, endless cycle of slavery. And it's like the world is asleep, sleep walking in the swill of lost time, in utter, mindless, self-indulgent denial of its maker and its judge. The judge who will, as Peter says here in verse 5, at his appointed time, bring down the curtains on this mess and call all people to their knees. But you, Peter says, you have done and you have spent enough time, you have wasted enough time doing what the pagans choose to do. And isn't that a word that we need to hear too, isn't it? In his book, Civilization, the historian Niall Ferguson talks about, about the way the word ethic of the Reformation, as he calls it, slightly adapting Max, uh, Max Weber's famous phrase, the work ethic, uh, where the Reformation's emphasis on the word of God in people's hands, in their native tongues, led to a growth of education, a greater sense of personal responsibility, of delayed gratification, 
All the ingredients that lead to healthy, growing, stable economies that have been enjoyed in the West largely over the last few hundred years and more recently in other places where missionaries have gone with the gospel. And Ferguson talks about the way this word ethic culture has been almost entirely undone in the space of just 50 years since the early days of the sexual revolution where personal responsibility and restraint and thrift have been so rapidly replaced by the rampant celebration of the self, of pleasure, of free love and freedom from any kind of dogma and repression. Just 50 years. What Peter reminds us in this letter, I think, is that when it comes to human history, this sort of mindful, mindless, wasteful, decadent idolisation of the self is actually the norm. It's always been the norm in the ancient world, as it is today. The word ethic culture of the centuries following the Reformation is, if anything, a blip rather than the norm. And now, just look how quickly it's taken to return to the status quo, mere 50 years. And this is the normal polluted air that we breathe. The same polluted air breathed in by Peter's audience. And we're kidding ourselves if we can imagine that we're somehow immune to its asphyxiating power. In fact, in, in his book, Ferguson points to the apparent contradiction that with this uh, general decline in Christian culture in North America, evangelicalism seems to be on the rise. How can that be? Well, we'd like to say, of course, that that's because the gospel has been going out and people have been converted and saved, and I'm sure that, in part, that's true. But Ferguson is a little more cynical than that. He suspects that much of what passes for evangelical Christianity is too often little more than a Christianized parody of the self-indulgent world in which it is immersed. He talks about a kind of Walmart cinema Christianity that makes very few demands on its followers, while its followers make a great many demands on God to satisfy their personal needs so that God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he says, is effectively displaced by God the analyst, the agony aunt and the personal trainer. Now, it'd be easy, I, I, I think, for us to sort of point the finger at a brand of evangelicalism as if this is never going to be our issue. But part of the problem, I think, with the kind of seduction that Peter's talking about is that it, it's mindless. It, it's lost control of its senses and therefore you may not even know it's happening to you, let alone how serious it is. Some of you will know what it's like to be harassed by cranky missionaries coming back, on ho back for home assignment and, you know, it can be a little annoying. But why is it that missionaries all too often return home only to find themselves discouraged by what they see? I mean, isn't it because they might have come from a place where the Christians that they've known have been hungry and zealous for the word, eager to serve, not perfect, but honest and deliberate in resisting sin and temptation, perhaps even at great personal 
sacrifice or cost or in conditions of considerable scarcity compared to the abundance of gospel riches that we enjoy. Only then to return home and find the Christians that they see asleep at the switch, apathetic, self-indulgent, demanding rather than serving, careless about sin, all too like those around us. The mindlessness of sin's seduction, it it means we may not even be able to see it until somebody else comes along and points it out, like a returning missionary. Well, Peter says, you've spent enough time doing what pagans choose to do, that secret lust or addiction that serves no good end, that turns you in on yourself, that eats away at your resources, that treats other people as objects, that erodes your capacity for real love with real people. You've wasted enough time on it, he says. I mean, I dread to think how much time and energy and imagination and creativity I've invested in myself that I could have invested in those that God has given me to serve. Love your neighbour as yourself. Just imagine what kind of world we would have if people took that command seriously. But that is our calling, brothers and sisters. Notice that there, verse 8, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And of course, the more that we actually live up to this calling, the stranger will look. Verse 4, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. The people around us, sadly, are like fish submerged in a filthy sea of self-indulgence. The water is so normal and the clear air outside looks so strange and menacing to those who swim in this sea. And they think it's strange that you do not plunge in with them. And that's the way it will be. And of course, we're increasingly saying these days, as if we're just waking up to it, that the further the West descends from the culture created by that word ethic of the gospel, the stranger and more menacing we Christians will look. We're no longer just sort of sandal-wearing wowsers. We're now a dangerous threat to the morality and the self-indulgence and, uh, uh, of the commissars of this new religion. But that's the way it will be. It's the way it must be, because as Peter says earlier in the letter, we have been redeemed from this empty way of life by the precious blood of Christ. So Peter says, first of all, stop wasting time. We are to be people who have our eyes on the clock, The end of all things is near. The judge is near. The judge is coming. But he also shows us how we can start redeeming the time. What does it look like to have your eyes on the clock? Well, he gives us a beautiful picture here in verses 8 to 11. And wouldn't it be great to meditate on this more deeply than we can in our time now? But let's just take a little bit of a look. How can we start redeeming the time? Well, it's as simple as this. Rather than chiefly investing in yourself, you chiefly invest in others. The essence of it is summed up there in verse 8. Above all, love each other earnestly, deeply. 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I have to admit, I find this a bit of a troubling verse. I have all kinds of people in my life, as you do. I'm talking about people I know, Christian people with whom I presently have some kind of relationship, not strangers. Love one another earnestly, zealously, intentionally. That's the sense of what he's saying here since love covers over a multitude of sins. Well, there's a small number of my brothers and sisters with whom that command is relatively easy to practice. Partly because my affection for those people aids my commitment to them. My love for them is not perfect, but it's consistently zealous, by and large. I'm invested in their welfare. I might even go under a bus for them. I won't tell you who, I don't want anyone getting anxious. But there's a much larger group of brothers and sisters whose company I genuinely enjoy, but for whom those affections are not as strong. So the love requires more effort. It's more reactive rather than proactive, driven by circumstance and duty rather than deliberate intention. And then there are a small number of people where the desire, the will, the affections are simply not there if not at times, even working in the opposite direction of love. Might just be a minor irritation, relatively speaking, personality clash. But sometimes it's because of real betrayal and hurt that's left a callous imprint in my body. I admit this because I'm sure I'm not simply speaking for myself. But more to the point, a verse like this unsettles me When you come to a verse like this, don't you find that your immediate instinct is straight away to start making qualifications? (laughs) Love one another earnestly. Oh, well, that can't possibly mean everyone. You know, I can't love everybody deeply. My family, well, they have to come first and then there are my friends. But then I can't be friends with everybody. Some people are closer, live closer to me than others. And then there are people for whom I'm immediately responsible in my workplace and I've got limited capacities and I don't want to burn out, so I have to be selective. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Oh, yes, 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 but we don't want, you know, we don't want to sweep sin under the carpet. It's right to pull people up when they've been ungodly and people hurt us and that has to affect our relationships and create distance and surely it takes time for things to heal, and, and, and then sometimes people are unrepentant when they hurt us, and then what? What does love look like then? And so it goes on and on. Now, all of those qualifications may be wise and necessary, but notice Peter doesn't make any qualifications here, does he? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. No qualifications. Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother, Peter said? Seven times? 
No, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. No qualifications. But we rush to make qualifications and in doing so evade the real challenge of this call to love. Widely, zealously, indiscriminately, and we evade the real pain that is involved in genuine forgiveness and restoration of relationships. And we just carry on as we always have and file this verse away in the drawer. And brothers and sisters, I just want you to feel the challenge of that exhortation in your own life. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's costly. In your own circumstances, before we rush to make the qualifications that we may need to make. Well, Peter gives us two applications of this challenge here, and let's just glance at them briefly. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality. That doesn't just mean the occasional dinner party for friends. It means open homes, open hands, open hearts, a willingness to share what we have been blessed with for our brothers and sisters in need and even at the risk of finding that our resources are presumed upon or taken for granted. Without grumbling. I remember when I was in parish ministry before I was married, there was a young fellow who was new to church. He fell out badly with his parents and he needed a place to stay for a while. So I thought I'd do my duty and I, I let him stay with me in my flat. And within days, he was driving me up the wall. He didn't conform to my standards of hygiene. The poor fellow, he was totally nocturnal. It was a, it was a small flat and very soon we were on top of each other. And to my shame, I started grumbling. It's a very important place for duty in the Christian life. We have a duty to our families. We have a duty to those who employ us. We have a duty to our brothers and sisters at church and not least to God himself. And we all should embrace those duties willingly and faithfully. But mere duty for duty's sake, or worse still, a kind of duty that's crafted for appearances or a self-congratulation, which, car which carps and grumbles behind closed doors. Let's not kid ourselves. That's less than what real love should be. Show hospitality without grumbling. A philoxenoi, a love for the stranger that overcomes the xenophobia. And then secondly and finally, we love through participating in the economy of God's grace. Each of you have a gift, verse 10. God didn't give it to you for your self-esteem or for your ego. He gave it to you to serve others with. Whatever gift you have, it's not really yours in the end to use as you please. It's been entrusted to you in stewardship for others. So that in the midst of an economy of scarcity, an economy of greed and consumption, of hoarding, the church is to be an economy of God's abundant grace, a place of 
reckless generosity for his glory, verse 11. So in this passage, Peter urges us to keep our eyes on the clock, on God's clock. The end of all things is near. Stop wasting time through mindless investment in yourself and start redeeming time through intentional, loving investment in others. That's his message. And it's profoundly countercultural. The world will think it's strange, but it also, they ought to, also ought to be able to say, as they did of the Christians in the early church, see how they loved each other. At Moore College, I teach the students about Christian sanctification. Theologians have often summarised the basic activity of Christian sanctification in terms of the cross and the resurrection itself, just the way that the Apostle Paul does. What does it mean to be sanctified, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ? Well, essentially, Paul says it's about mortification and vivification, putting to death, mortifying what belongs to the flesh, to the old nature and putting on the new life, putting on Christ, the new self which is being created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, mortification and vivification. And it strikes me that what Peter says in this passage is exactly the same as Paul. Stop wasting time, mortify that old way of life, and start redeeming time, put on the new way of life, the economy of God's abundant grace and love. And like Paul, Peter recognises it's a battle, it's hard, it's the way of suffering and self-denial. It's a battle, I've skipped over this, but This is very important. What is the weapon that God gives us for the battle? Well, have a look back to verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. A lot of ink has been spilled on those verses. Peter may well have the Garden of Gethsemane in mind throughout this chapter, not just uh, the cross per se. You'll see that there in, say, in verse 7. He may be alluding to Gethsemane again, where he urges us to be alert so that we can pray. Think of Gethsemane. Think of Christ with his eyes on God's clock, putting aside all prospect of immediate gratification, laying aside every privilege, every prerogative, the prestige to which he was entitled, knowing exactly what he had to face in all its horror and praying, not my will, but yours be done. For no other reason than he loved his father and he loved us. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And Peter says, arm yourself with the same attitude. I I don't know how that 
makes you feel to hear that. I mean, as inspiring as Christ's example is, the thought that I might be able to copy it, that through some Promethean act of will and power, I may be able to reproduce in my life all his peerless strength and purity in the face of temptation. Well, it's laughable to say the least. Christ's suffering is, of course, unique. And we mustn't forget that when we read this verse, I think. He was the suffering of the righteous one for the unrighteous, to bring the unrighteous, like you and me, to God. I, was con- I, I confess I was struggling to find a commentary helpful on this verse, so I had to go back to the 17th century, to a commentary by a man called Robert Layton, one time Archbishop of Glasgow in the 1670s. Leighton reminds us that when Christ suffered, he didn't just suffer as our rule, but as our saviour. And therefore, to arm ourselves with his attitude is not simply a call to copy him, but it's a discipline that begins first with trust, with faith in his suffering for us in our place, with the trust that Christ suffered so as to change us, so as as to sanctify us, so as to conform us into his likeness. This is what some of Leighton writes, and I'll finish with this. We are more obliged to make his suffering our example because it was to us more than an example. It was our ransom. The pious contemplation of his death will most powerfully kill the love of sin in the soul. The believer looking on Jesus crucified for him and wounded for his transgressions and taking in deep thoughts of his spotless innocency which deserved no such thing and of his matchless love which yet endured it all for them will then naturally think, shall I be a friend to that which was his deadly enemy? Shall sin be sweet to me, which was so bitter to him? Shall I ever lend it a good look or entertain a favourable thought of that which shed my Lord's blood? Wouldst thou have power against sin and much increase of holiness, let thine eye be much on Christ. Let it dwell in him and be still with him. Wouldst thou have thy pride and passions and love of the world and self-love killed, go sue for the virtue of his death and that shall do it. Seek his spirit, the spirit of meekness and humility and divine love. Look on him and he shall draw thy heart heavenwards and unite it to himself and make it like himself. A Christian watches the clock by watching Christ and his life of self-denial and suffering and love for us in our place, the righteous 
for the unrighteous to bring us to God. All the way through his life, all the way to glory. It's only his unique suffering that has the power to turn us from wasting time on ourselves and to turn us outwards towards others and towards this world that is in desperate need of the gospel. So, Christian friends, keep your eyes on the clock. The end of all things is near. Our loving Father, give us that grace that we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus and particularly, Father, on the prospect of his return that day that you have set. We know, Father, that it is near. And we ask, Father, that you would just give us an attentiveness to that reality that takes shape in our lives in the form of turning us away from ourselves and turning us outwards towards others. an attentiveness, a hope that bears the shape of the Lord Jesus in our own lives. We thank you, Father, for his cross, for his resurrection, for the redemption through his precious blood that was intended for this very end. And we look forward to that day when he returns and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, Father, please give us that grace that we so desperately need this day and in our lives this week, we pray in his name. Amen.